Now we're done with that. Now where are we going from here? I, I, uh, I teased it a little bit last week. But we're starting a new series this week. It's a very short series. And it's called The, the Gospel-Shaped Life. That's what we're calling it. The Gospel-Shaped Life. And we're calling it that because the gospel, the power of the gospel, doesn't just save us from our sins. It does that. But it doesn't just save us from their sins. The power of the gospel also continually transforms us throughout the entirety of our lives. The gospel shapes and colors every single element of our lives. The gospel shapes and colors who we are and how we live. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be thinking about that. We're going to be asking that question. How does the gospel shape and color this area of my life? Or this area of my life? My marriage, my work, my parenting, my rest. And so because that's such an important question for us, not just to hear and learn about, but also to wrestle with and think about how to apply in our own lives, what we're going to do in our home groups, which are starting next week, by the way. Yeah, awesome. Is that we're going to wrestle with that question together in our home groups. How do we live a life shaped by, colored by the gospel? So that's where we're going over the next couple weeks. But today, we're going to start with the obvious question. The place that we need to start. And that's by answering this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? We call the gospel the good news, but what is that good news? Romans chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that the gospel, that Paul is not ashamed rather of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So it must be important, right? We can't read Romans 1.16 and think that this is a trivial question for us to wrestle with. And if I'm honest with you, I've been wrestling with this question deeply over the last couple months. Not because I don't know what it is, but because the implications are so vast. It's so broad. It does shape and color every element of our lives. So it's important for us to actually slow down and ask this question. Because I think, if I'm honest, it's not just foundational. It's all-consuming to what we believe. Everything is shaped and colored by the gospel. So let me pray. And then we're going to dive in this morning. Pray with me. Father, this word that we use... We think about it as a Christian word, the gospel. Because it's not a word that we find anywhere else in in our culture, really. And Father, we know it's important. We know it's, it's central to who we are. But Father, help us have a better understanding today by the time we leave of what it is. Not just so that we can know, Lord. But so that we can worship you for it. So that when we remember the good news, who you are and what you've done that it would drive us to overflow with delight. It would guide us, lead us to bubble over with praise, Lord. That we wouldn't help but hear this truth and think about this truth, remember this truth, and not surrender our entire lives to you, Lord, in devotion and worship, God. You're a God who's worthy of that. And so, Father, I pray that as we hear this truth that we talk about a lot afresh today, we wouldn't think to ourselves, oh, I've heard that. I don't need it this time. Or, uh, I've already accepted Jesus, so I don't need to hear this. Father, I pray that as we think about the gospel this morning, we would truly come to know, understand, and believe that the power of the gospel is something that we need, not just at the beginning of our faith, but every single day the rest of our lives. You are powerful, Lord. 
And I pray that through the gospel this morning, thinking about the gospel this morning, it would lead us to tap into and delight in that power, Lord. So open my mouth to speak truths only and open everyone's ears, Lord, to hear not what I have to say, but what you have to say. If anything I say is true, Lord, help it pass right through our ears. Or sorry, not true. Help it pass right through our ears. But if it is true, Lord, I pray that it would stick in our hearts and change us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That was an important correction. <laughs> we, don't want the, we don't want the Lord answering that, that prayer. All right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the trees, the skies, the birds, the animals. He created us. And because God is all-powerful and he's perfect, everything God made was perfect. Without error. There was no mistake. Everything in the creation was exactly the way God wanted it to be. And it was good. And God told man and woman that they could eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden. Anything they wanted to, except for one tree. That was the only command that we see. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't eat of that tree. But we know that only a couple verses later, after that command, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They did what they wanted rather than what God wanted. They were tempted by the serpent, tempted by Satan, and gave in to that temptation. Ate of that one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And in that moment, sin entered into the world. In that moment, they fell. And in that moment, every single human being who would ever be born fell into sin, just like them. From that moment, we have been enslaved to sin. And sin reigns in our hearts. And sin separates us from the living God. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because of the sin that's in this world. But just a couple verses after the fall happened, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God already had a plan to fix that problem. Even in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, we know that God had a plan to fix what was broken, to redeem what had fallen, to defeat the power of sin in the world, to make all wrong things right again. He already had a plan. And the amazing thing is that as we walk through the Bible, we see hints of exactly what that plan was. In Genesis chapter 3, God speaks of the seed, a seed of the woman, or a descendant of the woman, who would come to, someday come and crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat Satan. Genesis chapter 49, we read that Jacob tells of a ruler from the tribe of Judah who would come to establish an everlasting kingdom and restore the condition pre-fall. We see in 2 Samuel 7 that God tells David that his descendant would be on the throne of Israel forever. And in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the prophet Isaiah tells us of a suffering servant who would one day come to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities. And so these passages, and that's just a small sampling of them, there's so many more. They speak of a future day when God would establish his rule over this fallen world and defeat the sin that keeps our world in bondage. In other words, God had a plan. He set a plan in motion right from the beginning to fix what was broken, to redeem what had fallen, to defeat the power of sin, and to make all wrong things right again. So people, we waited. We waited for the day that God would do this. We waited for the day that God would come and win victory over the powers of sin and death. We waited for the day that this king would come to establish his kingdom. We waited for the day when this suffering servant would come and crush our transgressions. We waited, in other words, for the day when this king would come to make all wrong things right again. 
And then a man came. A man came who was unlike any other man in the history of the world. This man was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He spoke with the authority of God. He forgave sins. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He rose the dead to life. He was a man who was fully man and fully God. He was a man who fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the Old Testament. And this man's name was Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, as they would have known him. He was the long-awaited king that we had been waiting for, the one through whom God would fix all things, redeem what had fallen, defeat the power of sin, and make all wrong things right again. That's why Jesus Christ came. And that's what Jesus Christ did. But he didn't do it in the way we expected him to. He didn't do it in the way they expected him to. In fact, Jesus Christ came to defeat the powers of sin and death in the exact opposite way as we would have expected him to. Because he didn't come in with an army. He came in as a servant. He didn't come in strength. He came in weakness. Jesus Christ, he didn't come and put a crown of gold on his head, but he came and allowed man to put a crown of thorns on his head. He didn't come wearing a royal robe, but he came and allowed man to put a robe around him in mockery of him. And he wasn't elevated to a throne, but he was elevated on a cross. In the eyes of the world, it looked like he had been defeated. It looked like this king had come back to regain his kingdom, and the king had lost, had been defeated, had been crushed. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Because three days later, Jesus Christ rose victorious over the grave, victorious over death. Proving that he alone of all people in the history of the world has power over sin and death. And then he ascended to be with God the Father Almighty sitting at his right hand, sitting on his heavenly throne where he today is ruling over all of creation. His death, was not, his death and resurrection was not a defeat. It was Jesus' plan. That was Jesus' victory. That was the moment of his enthronement in the moment that King Jesus took his finally earned throne reigning over his kingdom. Because in Jesus Christ, he overthrew the power of sin and death. And he reigns today over his kingdom. Now, of course, that's good news. It's good news that a good and perfect king is ruling over the world. It's good news that the power of sin and death has been defeated. But I want to be clear, it's not good news to us. Not yet. Because, in fact, this is really bad news. It's bad news that a perfect judge and king is ruling over the world because in reality, we're not citizens of that kingdom. At, at least not, a, not by birth. Rather than being citizens of that kingdom, we were born as citizens, we were born as rebels to that kingdom. The only ones who are worthy of being called citizens of the kingdom of God are those who are righteous as he is righteous, who are holy and perfect as he is holy and perfect. And the problem is that everyone who has ever been born has been born in sin. Not born as citizens of the kingdom, but born as rebels to the kingdom. Born as rebels to that king. And by nature, we are all born as those who chafe against the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So this is bad news. We might say that this is the worst news that we could possibly hear. That the one who is ruling on the throne is an enemy of our natural state. But the bad news, the worst news in the universe is countered by the most glorious news of the universe. 
the best news in the universe, something we might call good news. And the good news is that even though we were born as rebels to the king, even though we were sinful, broken rebels, he loved us. Does that just shatter your mind? Doesn't doesn't that just blow your mind? Why would he do that? Why would he love us? It doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like I've spent years trying to answer that question. Why would you die for us? And the only answer that I can ever come to is because he chose to. He decided to. He loved us before we did anything to deserve that love. So that while we can never be righteous as he is righteous, while we can never be good enough to earn the citizenship in the kingdom of God, Jesus made a way to wash away our sin and to make us righteous. In other words, right in his eyes. Jesus made a way to make us citizens of that kingdom. How? How does that work? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. It's a complicated verse. Let me go through it really slowly. He says, For our sake, he, that's God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, if we are in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's a complicated sentence, but here's what it's saying. It's a substitution. Jesus takes our sin, and we get his righteousness. Jesus takes the wrath for that sin, and we get the reward that comes with his righteousness. It's a substitution. And that substitution makes us right in God's eyes, so that when God sees us, he doesn't see a bunch of sinners. He sees Jesus. And we're not just citizens of this kingdom, but we are co-heirs with Christ, we read. We are made right in the eyes of God and are beloved by him. And the only way for us to receive that citizenship, to be made right in the eyes of God, is by repenting and believing by faith. By faith, turning from our former way of life and thinking to Christ's way of thinking. By the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, Christ working in us, turning us from our old way to our new way. By faith, trusting that it's not what we can do to make us right in the eyes of God, but it's what he has already done. We can never do it. And it's in this way we are made righteous. In this way we are set free from the power of sin and death. And in this way we are made citizens of the kingdom of God. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Colossians chapter 1.13 says this. That he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, died, and rose again. Defeating the power of sin and death. Establishing his new kingdom. Redeeming a people for himself, that's us. And one day, returning to bring his kingdom in its fullness when he returns in glory to make all things new. That's the gospel. And that's the thing that makes us who we are. That's the thing that doesn't just save us from hell, but makes us new creations. But the problem is we have a tendency to distort this gospel. 
When we look at the history of the church, even from the very beginning, we see that Christians have constantly and continually distorted, manipulated, or replaced this gospel. And the funny thing is that in every generation, in every era, Christians are prone or tempted to make that mistake in different ways. For instance, even at, right at the beginning, we read in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He, what he said to them is really interesting. This is, this is what he says. Galatians 1, 6-7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They didn't have decades to lose it. Not that there is another one, he says. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We're so prone, we're so quick to take the simple, beautiful truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and all he accomplished by it, and add in different things, or take out different things, saying, yeah, Jesus did it all, but you also have to read your Bible every morning for an hour. Now, that's good. If you want to read your Bible every morning for an hour, awesome. I encourage you to have a discipline of Bible reading, or a discipline of, uh, of consistent serving in your, in your community. All of this is a, a right and natural outpour of what the gospel does in us. But it's not the gospel. It's not the thing that saves us. So when I think about the church today, I said, I said just a moment ago, that we're all tempted and prone to distort the gospel in different ways. I think that the church in America today is tempted to distort the gospel in two ways. I see this in myself, and I see this in a lot of other people following after Christ. One is that we're tempted to make the gospel too narrow or too small. And the other temptation that we're prone to fall into is that sometimes we make the gospel too big. Sometimes it's too small and sometimes it's too broad. Maybe I shouldn't say too big. <laughs> What's bigger than that truth? But too narrow and too broad. Let me explain what I mean by that. The first temptation is that we have to beware of making the gospel too narrow. The gospel is the means by which we receive salvation. It's the only way of attorning of receiving eternal life. And to that we have to say, yes, amen, hallelujah, good. We celebrate that truth. We spread that truth because we want people to be redeemed, to be made right. That's a good thing. By faith alone, we, are, we receive that eternal life. But the danger with that gospel is that sometimes we make the gospel our ticket out of hell, and then that's it. We make the gospel the starting point of our faith, and then that's all. Sometimes we're tempted to use the gospel as just a way to get into the kingdom, and then we forget about it. As if the power of the gospel only helped us at the beginning and doesn't help us the rest of the way. It doesn't help us the rest of the journey. And I know I do this quite a bit. I do this in my own spiritual uh, life as well. I do this when I remember that I've been saved by Jesus Christ, but then forget that I'm being perfected by the power of Christ working in me. It's not that Jesus saves us and then says, good luck, guys, and pats us on the back. Jesus, by his power, is transforming us more and more into his image. And yes, we work, but he is working in us. I do this also when I hear a preacher starting to shift his sermon to talk about the gospel. And I think, oh yeah, I've heard this. <laughs> no, I've already gotten this. I've already received this salvation. I don't need to hear this again, but you know, there's probably other people here who need to hear it, so you know, I'm glad he's saying it. 
I do that. I'm so tempted to do that when somebody starts talking about the gospel. Maybe you felt that way when I said that this series was going to be about the gospel. But the gospel isn't just something that helps us at the beginning to get us into the kingdom. The gospel is the power of God working in the people of God. And that's not just at the beginning, but every single day, forever. When we treat the gospel as just a starting point, we're robbing the gospel of its full power. We're losing sight that the gospel truly is good news, that God is not just saving sinners from hell, but also transforming them into his image more and more throughout their entire lives. Tim Keller, uh, the pastor in New York City, he says it best, I think, when he says this. In our Christian life, we never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub of a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Zs of Christianity. You've heard me say that one before. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in that kingdom. So, in other words, the gospel hasn't just transformed us, it is transforming us. Our thinking, our living, everything. The gospel's power doesn't stop at the point of salvation. The gospel's power transforms us more and more into the image of Christ every single day as we are reminded of it, as we rely upon it, as it works and transforms us. So first, beware of making the gospel too small. Beware of using it just as a ticket out of hell, but then forgetting that its power is continuing to work in you. That's the first danger. And I think the second danger is that sometimes we make the gospel a little bit too broad. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The gospel is good news that Jesus is not just saving sinners from hell, but is making all things new again. Because of this, the gospel's work in us will drive us out into the world to be culture changers, to fight against poverty, oppression, abuse, etc., Sometimes we call this work uh, kingdom work. And what we mean by that is that our king calls us as citizens of this kingdom to live as a shining light in this world. Again, yes, good. We would be in so much trouble if we forgot the fact that the changed life will necessarily result in changed actions. That would be ridiculous if we forgot that. But I think that the danger here is that sometimes we focus so much on the kingdom works part so much on the kingdom living part that flows out of the gospel that we forget that the true power of the gospel is not in our kingdom works, but in the work of the king. In other words, we tend to do good works in obedience to Jesus, a good thing, but then leave Jesus out of the process. So I'll give you an example in my own life. Um, Let's say I'm living as ambassador of Jesus Christ in this world, as I should be, as I'm called to be. And so I start building a relationship with my neighbor. Every time I walk by his house, I have a conversation with him, building that relationship, just building trust. Maybe in the winter, a big snowstorm comes, his snowblower is broken, so I snowblow his driveway. And maybe uh, I invite him over to my house to have dinner with my family. And we're just building a relationship, building a relationship. And we know that as citizens of the kingdom as ambassadors of the truth of Jesus Christ, sometimes an opportunity will come. An opportunity will come to actually speak the truth of the gospel, to share with them the best news in the history of the universe. But sometimes, when that window finally opens to communicate that truth, I keep my mouth shut. 
And the most amazing thing is why I keep my mouth shut. I keep my mouth shut because I think I'm loving him. I keep my mouth shut because, because I'm afraid of offending him. When in reality, what he needs is not just a snow-free driveway. What he needs is eternal life, a relationship with Jesus Christ who will make him a new creation. But I'm so tempted to do that. And when I do that, my gospel is a little bit too big. And the thing I have to continually remind myself is that if my good news has no Jesus, it is no gospel. It's a flowing out of the gospel, absolutely. It's, it's the necessary implications that we would share Christ's love with the world in that way. But for us to keep our mouths shut with the core truth of the gospel, of what Jesus Christ did, is to miss the point somehow. When our gospel is too broad, we content ourselves with good works, while what God wants even more and what man needs even more is the good news of life to be had in Jesus Christ. So beware of making the second error in the gospel, making it too broad and missing the fact that the gospel necessitates a surrendered heart to Jesus Christ before it leads us on into kingdom works. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, died, and rose again. Defeating the power of sin and death, establishing his new kingdom, redeeming a people for himself, and one day returning to bring his kingdom in his fullness when he comes again in glory. And yes, there is a myriad of implications to that truth, but we have to hold fast to the mast of that ship, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to be thinking about the implications of that gospel the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, has done. And we're going to be wrestling with how this truth transforms every single part of our lives, of our living, of our identity, of how we interact with others, how we interact with our wife and our kids. And my hope and my prayer is that by the time we get to the end of this series, we would be people who constantly check ourselves and saying, are we living a life that represents the truth that we believe? Are we, are we people who are living lives empowered by not our teeth gritting, but by the Spirit working in and through us? So that's where we're going through this series, and I cannot wait to walk through it with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for what you've done. And the truth that's right at the middle of all of this, God, is the fact that we haven't been able to do what you already have done. And that if we try to do things perfectly, Lord, without you, we're spinning our wheels and we're robbing the glory that come, that's due to your name, God. And so, Father, I pray that it would become more and more second nature for us not to have a gospel that's too small or too big. But ra rather, Father, that we would, we would understand the true power of the true gospel that you have changed us, are changing us, and are in the process of making your kingdom come in its fullness at the end of time. Lord, we wait for that day. We cannot wait for the day that you are on your throne on earth where we can see all of you in all of your glory, Lord. We worship you and we praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.